Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here. Uh, welcome to Resurrection Church. Welcome if you're joining us online. Uh, in the pew in front of you, you got three things, I hope. Uh, you got these two cards and an envelope. And Matt just explained uh, envelope, obviously, is for offering. It goes in the offering uh, baskets in the back. These two cards, one of them is if you're new. So if you're new here, you've just not had an opportunity to connect with us yet, you can fill that out. And the other is prayer request. Uh, we have a prayer team that would love to pray for you, whether that's praying over praises and thanksgiving that you are giving or over prayer requests for things that are going on, struggles in your life. Um, so you could fill either of these out and put them in those same uh, offering baskets uh, at the back or in the foyer after service. Um, we are in a uh, really busy season in our church. Uh, I, I got the question a lot a few months back, uh, you know, when is the church going to do something? Now I get the question of why are we doing so much? Uh, so, you know, it's a good balance. Yesterday, we had a work day where we had uh, probably close to, if not over 100 people show up. It was absolutely amazing. Thank you if you showed up. I think they. Uh, I think we hauled away a couple metric tons of vegetation, uh, <clears throat> cleaned a lot of stuff. There people on the roof, people in the park, people in the production area. We got a lot done, and uh, we really appreciate it. It looks a lot nicer around here than it did a couple days ago. After this service, today, uh, we also have our business meeting at 2.30. You've probably seen that. We have uh, three men that we are putting forward to our owners to confirm as elders that we've spent three years walking with. And then after that, at 5, we have week one of our new adult Bible study, the uh, Six Tensions of a Healthy Church that starts at 5 p.m. here in the sanctuary. So it's a busy day. Lots going on. Uh, last week, Vance walked us through Ephesians 1, verses 4, 5, and 6. So we're in a five-week series going through the first part of Ephesians 1. And in that, uh, let me just remind you what he walked us through. It, 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 verses 4, 5, and 6 say this, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That's Jesus. Right. Vance explained to us these concepts, these doctrinal concepts of predestination and adoption. The idea that God chose you and I before the foundation of the earth. And these are facts about us and about what God has done for us that should shape our very identity as believers. I don't know uh, if this is something that impacts you the way that it should. I know it doesn't impact me the way that it should every day, but every day, because the Father knew exactly who I was going to be and chose me and loves me anyways, I should wake up in a spirit of gratitude that he knows who I am and loves me anyways. Knowing that we were chosen, knowing that we were adopted into the king's family, like this should be the most liberating thing that a believer will ever experience. The idea that we now have freedom because we're fully known by God and yet fully loved. This should be freeing. This should be empowering. When I, though, look at the community of people around me, uh, neighbors, coworkers, friends, uh, people that I run into, I would tell you that's not the type of freedom that most are experiencing. Instead, particularly in this last season, uh, I continue to 
uh, interact with people that are far from God, that do not walk in the freedom of God, that are instead going through failures, isolation, depression, uh, a great deal of pain and trauma in their life. And so uh, as a pastor, as a staff member here, uh, we have been continually strategizing, not simply on the ways that we each individually can reach out to the people in our lives with this message of hope, but how do we empower you, the royal priests, as the Bible would say, to do this? How do we help you and equip you to reach out to the people that God has providentially put in your life in order to invite into this message of hope? And so starting today, uh, we are going to do a three-week campaign called Love One Another. The Love One Another campaign is just a way that we're going to try to remind you and encourage you to be mindful of the people that God has put in your life and he's put you in their life to steward your influence, to invite them into this relationship with God, to invite them into this body of believers called the body of Christ, the church, to invite them to step out of the dysfunction of a broken world and into the freedom of hope with Christ. To do that, we have a couple ways. For most of us, we have one of these guys, right? I know that you have phones. Go ahead and take your phone out. Not enough of you are moving. I know there are more phones than that in here because I hear them ring when I'm preaching. <laughs> Go ahead and take your phone out. Go to your text message app, and you're going to send a message to 661-228-8300. And that message is going to have four letters in it, L-O-V-E. See, someone has their phone. I just heard it. L-O-V-E. You're going to text LOVE to 661-228-8300. What that's going to do is it's going to put you in an automated program that we're going to do, this campaign for the next three weeks, where we send you reminders during the week about praying for some people in your life being mindful about the people that God's put in your life, uh, really being sensitive to the work of the Holy Spirit as he identifies for you people that God has providentially placed in your path specifically so that you would have an impact on their lives. And so we'll be sending you those messages. You send us a text. We'll send you texts throughout the week for the next three weeks looking at really inviting people into either your small group or to the church, particularly as we look toward our Christmas series. Christmas... Uh, statistically is one of the most opportune times to be inviting people into the church, people that don't go to church. Most of them say they would be willing to go to church if someone would simply invite them. And we have a much higher attendance rate of people that are far from God coming into church right around the Christmas season. It's kind of like we're using this weird American tradition to our advantage. So we're going to really uh, work on this for three weeks leading toward a Christmas series called Of Lambs and Kings. Uh, we'll be talking about that some more as we get closer to December. We also are going to have a candlelight service. We're also going to have a kids' choir. It's going to be lots of fun. All right. Everybody's already sent that text, right? Okay, for the, the three of you that do not have a phone, we printed out all of the reminders in a packet, and you can pick that up. So if you are one of the three people left in our church that has flip phones, I got you covered. We got you covered. It's in the foyer. You can pick up all the reminders. You just have to set some sort of alarm to go back and read the reminders to yourself since you don't have a smartphone. All right. <clears throat> Everybody got that, right? Everyone signed up? All five of you. Excellent. Okay, online, there's really more than five people here right now. They're just really quiet. I just, I don't want them to be discouraged. All right. Moving on. 
4, 5, and 6 that uh, Pastor Vance preached last week are about the work of the Father, the idea that God, before the foundations of the earth, knew who you were going to be, knew who he was going to create in you, knew what you were going to do, and he loved you anyways. He chose you. He predestined you to be part of what's called the elect, the people that were going to be pursued and were going to ultimately come to Christ, were going to accept Christ, that that all happened before the earth was even formed, and that really that was a culmination of his decision to pursue us and adopt us into his family. And I love the word adopt. In fact, we're going to really get into this a little bit, that the Apostle Paul specifically in this letter and in a couple other letters, uses, when he says adoption, he uses the, the Greek legal term in Roman civilization. He's using very specific language to talk about adoption. And, and we just see it as adoption, but he's using legal terminology. And the reason he's using legal terminology, he wants to ram home, he wants to force home a point so that you don't forget it, and that's this. That in the first century and in the time around that, uh, it was absolutely commonplace, unfortunately, that a father could disown their child if the child did something egregious enough to, to bring shame upon on the father. The father could say, you can no longer carry my name. You can no longer uh, solely my reputation. Your behavior is not worthy of my name. Therefore, I'm going to disown you. But, but that was only for natural born children to that person. Because if the person adopted under Roman rule, if the person adopted a son or a daughter, nothing that child could do would allow the father to disown them. Nothing, no act, no matter how egregious. So when Paul is being very specific to use this legal terminology over and over again, what he's trying to get you to wrap your brain around is the Father chose you. And because the Father chose you and adopted you, there's nothing you can do to not be a child of God. That should be encouraging, because trust me, I have tested the limits of that. Amen? Some of you have tested the limits of that. And in our minds, oftentimes, we think, no, 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 man, especially when, we're, when, when things are not going well, we have this, we have this idea that somehow we, we, we earned this favor of God, and we were his child, but then now we didn't do something right, or we failed, or we got caught in the midst of our sin, and so now we're not. That's not how this works. You can't run. For, you can run for him, but it ain't going to matter because he's got long legs. And he's going to get you because there's nothing you can do. Once you have entered into this grace, there's nothing you can do to not be a child of God. But today, in verses 7 and 8, uh, Paul is going to shift the letter from the focus of what the Father's work in knowing us, in creating us, in choosing us, in adopting us. And we're going to shift to the Son's work, to Jesus' work on the cross. It's going to say this in verses 7 and 8, where we're going to spend our time today. In him, that's in Jesus, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Paul, in this 14-verse uh, section that we're spending five weeks on, verses 1 through 14, is going to give us 
10 reasons in 14 verses why we should be thankful and praising God. 10 separate and distinct reasons. And today, in two verses, he's going to give us three of those. He's going to give us this, that we should be thankful and praising God because of this concept called redemption, which we're going to talk about. And it's different than our common usage of this language, redemption. Then he's going to tell us that we should be thankful and praising God for this concept of the forgiveness of sin or the forgiveness of our trespasses. And lastly, he's going to tell us that we should be thankful and praising God because he has lavished upon us grace upon grace upon grace. Let's start at the beginning of verse 7. In him, which is in Christ or in Christ Jesus, this is a reference, whether it's in Christ or in him, that is repeated in this section of Scripture 12 times. Do you think Paul's trying to get a, a point home to you? 12 times. Listen, if my mama tells me something 12 times, you better be darn sure that she really wants me to get it through my thick noggin. 12, that was my mom saying amen, by the way. In case you missed that. 12 times he's going to try to remind you in Christ. This is in him. This is in Christ. You don't do this of yourself. If, if you're still struggling with what in Christ means, just simply turn to John 15, 5 through 11. We, we looked at this in week one and look at what it means to be in Christ. Not to just know Christ. Not to know who he is. Not even simply to believe that he's the son of God because even the demons believe that he's the son of God. But that is not credited to their favor. No, you must be in Christ. He must know you and you must know him. In him. The Father, in verses four through six, adopted us, predestined us, chose us. And now here we see this work of Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Now, verses four through six were all past tense, right? He chose us, he created us, he knew us, he predestined us, he adopted us. Those are all past tense. But now we get, we have, that is current tense redemption. It is ongoing, it is active, it is real, it is here right now in the present. We have the things we're gonna cover today, verses seven and eight, we have redemption. Now, here's the problem with redemption. Redemption is this Redemption is a very rich word in the context of the Bible, and we don't use that word a lot. Redemption's root is redeemed, to be redeemed. Now, we only use the word redeem anymore when we're talking about coupons, right? Like when you go to your favorite restaurant and you have a coupon for like a free dessert, and you're going to redeem that, or like you, you buy way too much Starbucks, and so you have reward points to redeem. Yes? But that's not what it meant in the Bible at all because redeem was actually a legal word in the Old Testament. To redeem someone was to buy them out of their slavery. It was to buy them out of bondage. That's what the word actually means. You, you would be the redeemer. You're gonna buy them out of this, this, this uh, being enslaved or this debt that they had. And the payment that you had to offer in order to buy someone out of slavery was this thing called a ransom. So we don't use that word very much either unless you're, you're watching one of the, like, the black box show or one of, the, one of those shows about like, where there's a lot of crime, right? And they're like ransoming somebody because they kidnapped them. But see, nobody kidnapped you. You kidnapped yourself through sin. And you were a slave to yourself through sin. But somebody had to pay a price and buy you back. And that was the ransom. And we have redemption purchased from slavery through his Blood, or put this way in Hebrews 9:22, it says this, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, 
And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now that sounds really weird because we're not like most of us will buy the meat from the grocery store, but we really would never want to visit a butcher shop because we, we, we don't have much of an affinity or seeing blood, right? But, but in the Old Testament, blood was this constant theme that without the blood of something innocent, there could be no payment for sin. There could be no payment for the transgressions of the people. And so the symbolism in the Old Testament, all the way from the beginning, all the way through all the different uh, sacrifices they did, and, and, and from the Ten Commandments on, all of the different things that God created in, the, in this Old Testament people were meant to symbolize some things that were occurring and to drive home this point that our sin, our trespasses were so grievous that we had become uh, enslaved in bondage to sin and something was going to have to pay the price. And so, because there was nothing that could effectively pay the price and because you and I couldn't get ourselves out of slavery in the Old Testament, they would take innocent animals and it was through innocent blood being shed that we would have some sort of opportunity to at least stay the execution, at least push back the judgment of God temporarily until something could come and fix the problem. In Leviticus 17, 11, I know you guys probably know this by memory because you generally just read through Leviticus most mornings. So light reading, right. In, in Leviticus 17, verse 11, it says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, so life of an organic creature is in its blood, and I have given it for you on the altar, so I've sacrificed that living creature, the lifeblood, on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. This is the Old Testament concept, the symbolism of an innocent creature, a substitute for you and I, losing its life to atone for our sins. But that was temporary, and it never fixed the problem. It just covered up the problem. It just pushed back the problem temporarily, but it didn't fix it. Old, Old Testament symbolism taught that people's sins were transferred onto this innocent animal. And when the innocent animal lost its life and died for our punishment, that blood being shed was a substitute. It represented us paying the price, but something else did. And this was what the blood of Christ stands for. Now listen to how many times you're going to hear this reference. I'm just going to read you a couple from the New Testament. You're going to hear this again and again and again, this idea that this temporary concept, this temporary symbol becomes permanent in Christ. Romans 5, 9, since therefore we, you and I, have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So what did his blood do? It justified us. It, it paid this price. Ephesians 2.13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So the blood paid the price. Then the blood justified you and I. Then the blood brought us into the throne room. We get our slavery dealt with, our bondage dealt with. We get freedom from the blood. It pays the price that we couldn't pay but then it ushers us in to the throne room of the king. And then Colossians 1.20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So, so it deals with our slavery. It pays for our sins. It 
brings us into the throne room of God. And then the blood of Christ will reconcile every broken part on heaven and on earth by creating peace. Shalom. That's the power of the blood of Christ. That's why there's so many references to it in the New Testament. That's why we still sing about the blood of Christ. It's not because we're, well, we are crazy. We're just not that kind of crazy. We're crazy about what Christ's sacrifice did for us because it did all of these things. And we, saw, we sang about it a minute ago. In 1899, they created, there was a hymn by Lewis E. Jones called Power in the Blood. You guys heard of this? How many people heard that? A couple of you. Okay, here's the thing about power in the blood. There's no E. It's P-O-W apostrophe R. It's the perfect Oildale song. And we're in 93308 technically. So like you don't need every vowel if you're from the Dale. You get four out of five, you're all right. You know what I mean? Listen to this. Would you be free from the burden of sin? There's power in the blood. Power in the blood. Would you over evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There's power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Christians have been singing about the power in the blood for centuries because of what it's done for us. Now, here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think of the irony that God created us. He fashioned us out of nothing. He chose us and adopted us. Like, he did all that work. And then he came because of our sin, because of our trespasses, and bought us back out of slavery. Now, now, why am I making a point about that? If you created something, you own it. Does that make sense? I'm, I'm trying to make sure my kids hear this. If you created something, you own it, right? Parents? Okay, so God owned you because he created you. He fashioned you out of nothing. You're not your own, you're his. But then, because of what we did, he came back and bought us anyways. Now, there's a difference there, and I want you to see the beauty of this. And there's a story that I read this week that I loved, and I want to read it to you. And it illustrates how beautiful this is. In a city on the shore of a great lake lived a small boy who loved the water and sailing. So deep was his fascination that he, with the help of his father, spent months making a beautiful model boat which he then sailed at the water's edge. One day, a sudden gust of wind caught the tiny boat and carried it far out onto the lake and out of sight. Distraught, the boy returned home inconsolable. Day after day, he would walk the shores in search of his treasure, but always in vain. Then one day, as he was walking through town, he saw his beautiful boat in a store window. He approached the proprietor and announced his ownership only to be told that it was not his, for the owner had paid a local fisherman good money for the boat. If the boy wanted the boat, he would have to pay the price. So the lad set himself to work doing anything and everything until finally he returned to the store with the money. At last, holding his precious boat in his arms, he said with great joy, you are twice mine now because I made you and because I bought you. This is a picture of God's love for us. The entire idea 
that we were already God's and he already created us and we were already due to him, but because of our own failure, we had been separated by him. So he came and paid the price for his possession anyways. We are twice loved now because he made us, because he bought us. Amen? This concept that God would do all of this for us is so crazy that the angels envy this in us. The angels sing about this. When we go look at uh, Revelation 5, 9 through 12, it's this picture of what's going to happen in heaven. I want you to hear the angels actually singing testimony of this as they look longingly upon how God has loved us. It says this, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. If you didn't catch that, one, that's you. Two, you're priests, so stop telling me you're not in ministry. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Not only does Jesus' blood pay our debt, it also forgives our sins, our trespasses. Trespasses in this context literally means to be out of step, to, to make a mistake, to, to move outside of the boundaries of the lines. And the Bible talks about how God, through Jesus, will, create, will deal with our sin in this forgiveness. In Jeremiah 31, 34b, it says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Forgiveness of sin not only frees us from the debt, but it also the burden. And I think this is where you and I as believers get, get this wrong all the time. We understand intellectually that we've been freed from the debt, but we often decide to pick the burden back up that Jesus has already forgiven us for, and we put it back on and start walking with it again. Many of us are crushed by the guilt of our crime and our sin and our mistakes, destroyed by our past and our failures. Jesus' blood not only paid the debt, but it forgave us our sin. The Bible would say that, Jesus, that God will take our sin, and as far as the east is from the west is how far he removes our sin from us. This concept of what uh, happened in the Old Testament, in, in, in the sacrificing of lambs and of innocent animals in order to uh, stay the punishment but not really deal with it and having to point toward ultimately a Savior coming to deal with it. This is uh, encapsulated in Hebrews chapter 10. And I just want to read through ch Hebrews chapter 10 as Scripture will explain Scripture. This is often how we interpret Scripture. It's not by our own desire or design, but rather letting Scripture talk about itself. So read with me Hebrews chapter 10. We're just going to read from verses 1 to 25. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. What is it saying? 
The Old Testament sacrificial system was never made to actually fulfill the restoration of all things that we needed, the freedom from slavery that we needed, the freedom from bondage, the payment of our sin, the, the, the ability to lift our guilt off of us could never happen under this system. It was a shadow of good things to come. It was pointing to the ultimate savior. Verse two, otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? If the Old Testament system had worked, we wouldn't have had to keep doing it year after year after year. Listen to me, believer. If your ability to fix yourself worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing it. Let me say that again. Christian, if your ability to fix yourself worked, you wouldn't have to keep doing it again and again. Because Jesus did it once. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first order to establish the second. And by that will, we have all been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, once for all. Believer, when you treat your old life and your sin and that burden as if God didn't deal with that. Jesus didn't deal with that one time on the cross. You're asking Jesus to climb back up on the cross again. He did that once for all, for your past tense, for your present tense, and for your future tense. Verse 11, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. We're pointing back to the Old Testament again. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Talk to a lot of new believers who right after coming to Christ and putting their faith in Christ, go through a period of time in which they feel a lot worse about themselves than they did before they knew Jesus. Well, all of a sudden, as God has illuminated your light, as he's turned the lights on in a messy room, you get to see really how bad it is. When, 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 when you feel believer, those of you who put your faith in Christ, when you feel guilt, when you feel conviction, it is simply God who has now written his law on your heart and in your mind to remind you when you're stepping out of line with the gospel. Continuing verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. And if God's not going to remember them, you need to put them down too. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Now here's the full assurance of faith in verse 19. Therefore, brothers, 
Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. All right. There's a lot in two verses. I just want to explain this really fast because I think there's a misunderstanding of this a little bit. In the temple, okay, we're going to go all the way back to the Old Testament. In the temple, there were, there were areas of the temple all the way into the Holy of Holies. In the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant set, no one could enter. The presence of God dwelled with the Ark of the Covenant. And you and I, being in sin, being sinful people under the bondage of sin, could not go into the Holy of Holies, past that final curtain, or else we would die. So once a year, the high priest, after spending time atoning for his own sins, repenting for his own sins, sacrificing for his own sins, going through ritual purification, could once a year go through that last curtain, enter into the Holy of Holies, and be in the presence of God in order to make an atonement for the people's sins, to stave off and push off judgment for one more year until Jesus. And when Jesus comes, it says, by his blood... We now are ushered into the Holy of Holies. Every person, because of his blood, now goes past the curtain. In fact, not just past the curtain. It says the curtain is now his flesh because the curtain, remember when Jesus dies at Golgotha, he dies on the cross, there's an earthquake, it gets dark, and then what happens? The great curtain in the Holy of Holies tears down the middle on its own from top to bottom. The thing that separated you and I from God, from the throne room, from the presence of God, from relationship with God. For centuries, the people sat on the other side of that curtain. And then that sacrifice through his blood toward that curtain. And it wasn't just the symbolism of the curtain. It was the idea that you went from being far from God to being able to be in the throne room of God, to be in the presence of God, to have God dwell in you in the form of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're talking about. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, that's Jesus, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the draw day, uh, day drawing near. Now, I just want to, we did 25 verses. For 22 or 23 of those 25 verses, God is, the Bible is explaining to you and I, breaking down to you and I, this process that has changed, this old to new Testament, this sacrificial system to the final sacrifice, this, this not really appropriate, not, this is never really going to solve the problem, old Testament rituals and laws and, and symbolism to the once and final sacrifice that through the power of his blood has done each of these things as it ushered us into the throne room of God. And then it gets to the end of all that. And you know what it tells you to do? Go to church. That's what it says. God bless you. It says go to church. So what are you and I to do? Well, first, we're to look at what God has done, this redemption, this, this forgiveness of trespasses, and then in response to who we now are and what he's now done, we are to encourage one another. Stir up one another to good works. At times, admonish one another gently. 
Why is this important? This is important because you can worship God and you can remind yourself about the truths of God at home on your couch. You know what? You can't do there very well. You can't stir up one another. You can't encourage one another. You can't remind one another about their new identity in Christ. One of, the, one of the main things that I can't replicate as a church body for you on your couch if you're not here is I can't put you next to in a pew someone that you don't really like because you'll just stay away from them. But when you come in here, you're going to get people that might rub you the wrong way and it's the blood of Christ that actually is going to be doing work in your life, in your heart because you're sitting next to someone that may be outside of the blood of Christ you might not like and yet God's going to tenderize you and he's going to create a gentleness in you and he's going to create a love in you where you just can't help but love that person even though you really would rather not love that person. And I just described most of your relationship with me. (laughs) That's the power of the blood of Christ. That's why we spend 23 verses reminding you about your new identity and the access that you have to the throne room of God before I tell you to get your button, church. You remember who you are. You remember what he's done. You remember what you're living for. You remember the sacrifice that was made. You remember your new identity as a son or a daughter of the king, and then you get together and remind each other about it. And that's church. It's what church is supposed to be. Now, in America, we made a mess of this, yes? But this is what church is supposed to be. And that leads us to this. According to the riches of his grace, which he, this is the best word, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Now, I don't think that you and I have a right understanding about this right here, the the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Because I think if we really understood this, if we could could wrap our brain around what that really looks like, what it really means, we would wake up so joyful and so grateful and so thankful every day that people would be like, would you stop bubbling over? Everyone's met the morning person that's way too much of a morning person. That's what you would feel like if you really had your arms around this. It would be a joy that was just bubbling over all the time. But I'm telling you, believers, and I've I've met you, and I love you, and I'm counseling you, and I'm praying for you, but there are just people that don't understand this idea of being lavished by his grace. Lavished. Not, Not he begrudgingly gave you some. Not like he gave you a little sprinkling of grace. Not a taste of it, lavished it upon you with wisdom and insight and discernment and revelation and a a Holy Spirit inside of you explaining to you the mysteries of God, changing you, riches that he lavished on you. Listen, if you are listening or here today and you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can sit back for just a second. I want you to listen to the riches that are lavished upon those that will put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because even as believers, when we struggle, when we're, you may have come in here today and just and it was a it was a rough week. Maybe you're just in a rough season. It's not a rough week. It's a rough year. And you're struggling. And when we struggle, we have this tendency to feel like that we worship a God who's disappointed in us. It's frustrated or, or that God is just simply tolerating us. But then you read Ephesians and the apostle Paul says that before the foundation of the earth, God knew that you were going to do these things that he chose you anyways. 
to adopt you, to make you holy and blameless. So that whether difficult days or good days, God is at work. That he will not abandon you in a difficult season. How amazing does it make our God that in the midst of our hypocrisy, he is long-suffering with us. In our inability to live out the calling, in our, in our inability to live what he's called us for, he would just lavish grace upon us. That we have redemption through his blood, that he has given us forgiveness for our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. The, the word lavish is so extravagant. It's so over the top. Plentiful, too much. When the Bible's talking about forgiveness and it says that his grace and forgiveness are not small things. It's like, is it a ridiculous amount? A ridiculous helping? Like you're like, yeah, that might be too much. And so he just keeps going. Man or woman of God who is struggling God does not regret saving you. You you didn't surprise him with how you acted this week. He's not watching you struggle through things and stumbling and failing and in dysfunction and regretting the decision to pay the price for you. You have no sin, past, present, or future that has more power than the cross of Christ. And that means that your, your salvation wasn't simply this one-time thing that Christ did and then he left you up on your own to figure out how you were going to conquer your present sins and how you were going to conquer your future sins because he did all of that on the cross. And that means that you are not disgusting to God. He is not disappointed in you. You may be saying, but you don't know what I've done. Here's what I know. I know, I know that there is no sin so evil that God did not die for it, that he did not redeem you for it, and that he did not cleanse you from. So if you're sitting there walking in this dysfunction instead of this identity as a child of God, I'll just tell you that's nonsense. You need to leave that where it's at. Because his grace, his riches have been lavished upon you. And if, if we could just get a glimpse of what it looked like to embrace that, that, that the attitude that God has toward us, we'd never be the same. You'd never wake up the same. That's why you and I are here. That's why we're doing a campaign to reach out to people who are walking in a hopeless world because it is a hopeless world outside of the blood of Christ. It is a hopeless world. They'll never figure it out. But when you get a glimpse of what God is willing to do, what he wants to do in your life, it changes everything. I'm gonna pray for us. Bow with me. God, would you drive this home through your spirit in our hearts, God, that you, just how much you love us, God. God, would you help us to walk and live in the identity of a, as a son or a daughter of the king, learning what it looks like to, to live in the richness of your grace that you have lavished upon us. 
God, do that for us individually, but God, let it just spill over the top of us so that we just can't control it, so that as we go back on Monday and and Tuesday and we begin to interact with people, God, that we can't shut up about what you've done. God, don't let us sit in the misery of sins that you already died for. God, don't let us hold on to these things that we've done in our past that your son saved us from. Remind us who we are, God. God, let us be that light into the earth, the the, the salt into this world, God, reminding them that you love them, that you're pursuing them, that there's hope, God. Let us go out with a desire to make an impact for your kingdom. Jesus' name, amen. We're going to play a song. You move as the Lord leads you. Our elders are going to be down here if you want someone to pray with or pray for you. You're a son and a daughter of the King. You've been ushered in to the throne room of God by the blood of Christ. As you leave today, leave encouraged. Amen.